Question 63 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima, On the Angels and on the Six Days, by St. Thomas Aquinas, Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 63. The Malice of the Angels with Regard to Sin in Nine Articles. In the next place we must consider how angels became evil. First of all with regard to the evil of fault, and secondly as to the evil of punishment. Under the first heading there are nine points for consideration. 1. Can there be evil of fault in the angels? 2. What kind of sins can be in them? 3. What did the angels seek in sinning? 4. Supposing that some became evil by a sin of their own choosing, are any of them naturally evil? 5. Supposing that it is not so, could any one of them become evil in the first instant of his creation by an act of his own will? 6. Supposing that he did not, was there any interval between his creation and fall? 7. Was the highest of them who fell absolutely the highest among the angels? 8. Was the sin of the foremost angel the cause of the others sinning? 9. Did as many sin as remained steadfast? First Article 1. Question 63. Article 1. Whether the evil of fault can be in the angels? Objection 1. It would seem that there can be no evil of fault in the angels, for there can be no evil except in things which are in potentiality, as is said by the philosopher. Metaphysics 9, text 19. Because the subject of privation is a being in potentiality, but the angels have not been in potentiality, since they are subsisting forms, therefore there can be no evil in them. Objection 2. Further, the angels are higher than the heavenly bodies, but philosophers say that there cannot be evil in the heavenly bodies, therefore neither can there be in the angels. Objection 3. Further, what is natural to a thing is always in it, but it is natural for the angels to be moved by the movement of love towards God. Therefore such love cannot be withdrawn from them, but in loving God they do not sin. Consequently, the angels cannot sin. Objection 4. Further, desire is only of what is good or apparently good. Now for the angels there can be no apparent good which is not a true good, because in them either there can be no error at all, or at least not before guilt. Therefore the angels can desire only what is truly good, but no one sins by desiring what is truly good. Consequently, the angel does not sin by desire. On the contrary, it is said, Job 4, 18, quote, In his angels he found wickedness. End quote. I answer that. An angel, or any other rational creature considered in his own nature, can sin. And to whatever creature it belongs not to sin, such creature has it as a gift of grace, and not from the condition of nature. The reason of this is, because sinning is nothing else than a deviation from that rectitude 
which an act ought to have, whether we speak of sin in nature, art, or morals. That act alone, the rule of which is the very virtue of the agent, can never fall short of rectitude. Were the craftsman's hand the rule itself engraving, he could not engrave the wood otherwise than rightly. But if the rightness of engraving be judged by another rule, then the engraving may be right or faulty. Now the divine will is the sole rule of God's act, because it is not referred to any higher end. But every created will has rectitude of act so far only as it is regulated according to the divine will, to which the last end is to be referred, as every desire of a subordinate ought to be regulated by the will of his superior. For instance, the soldier's will, according to the will of his commanding officer. Thus, only in the divine will can there be no sin, whereas there can be sin in the will of every creature, considering the condition of its nature. Reply Objection 1. In the angels there is no potentiality to natural existence, yet there is potentiality in their intellective part, as regards their being inclined to this or the other object. In this respect there can be evil in them. Reply Objection 2. The heavenly bodies have none but a natural operation. Therefore, as there can be no evil of corruption in their nature, so neither can there be evil of disorder in their natural action. But besides their natural action, there is the action of free will in the angels, by reason of which evil may be in them. Reply Objection 3. It is natural for the angel to turn to God by the movement of love, according as God is the principle of his natural being. But for him to turn to God as the object of supernatural beatitude comes of infused love, from which he could be turned away by sinning. Reply Objection 4. Mortal sin occurs in two ways in the act of free will. First, when something evil is chosen, as man sins by choosing adultery, which is evil of itself. Such sin always comes of ignorance or error. Otherwise, what is evil would never be chosen as good. The adulterer errs in the particular, choosing this delight of an inordinate act as something good to be performed now, from the inclination of passion or of habit, even though he does not err in his universal judgment, but retains a right opinion in this respect. In this way, there can be no sin in the angel, because there are no passions in the angels to fetter reason or intellect, as is manifest from what has been said above, question 59, article 4. Nor again could any habit inclining to sin precede their first sin. In another way, sin comes of free will by choosing something good in itself, but not according to proper measure or rule, so that the defect which induces sin is only on the part of the choice which is not properly regulated, but not on the part of the thing chosen as if one were to pray without heeding the order established by the church. Such a sin does not presuppose ignorance, but merely absence of consideration of the things which ought to be considered. In this way the angel sinned, by seeking his own good from his own free will, insubordinately to the rule of the divine will. Second Article 1. Question 63. Article 2. 
whether only the sin of pride and envy can exist in an angel. Objection 1. It would seem that there can be other sins in the angels besides those of pride and envy, because whosoever can delight in any kind of sin can fall into the sin itself. But the demons delight even in the obscenities of carnal sins, as Augustine says, the city of God, 14.3. Therefore, there can also be carnal sins in the demons. Objection 2. Further, as pride and envy are spiritual sins, so are sloth, avarice, and anger. But spiritual sins are concerned with the spirit, just as carnal sins are with the flesh. Therefore, not only can there be pride and envy in the angels, but likewise sloth and avarice. Objection 3. Further, according to Gregory, Moral Poems 31, many vices spring from pride, and in like manner from envy. But if the cause is granted, the effect follows. If, therefore, there can be pride and envy in the angels, for the same reason there can likewise be other vices in them. On the contrary, Augustine says, the city of God, 14.3, that the devil, quote, is not a fornicator, nor a drunkard, nor anything of the like sort, yet he is proud and envious, end quote. I answer that. Sin can exist in a subject in two ways, first of all by actual guilt, and secondly by affection. As to guilt, all sins are in the demons, since by leading men to sin they incur the guilt of all sins. But as to affection, only those sins can be in the demons which can belong to a spiritual nature. Now a spiritual nature cannot be affected by such pleasures as appertain to bodies, but only by such as are in keeping with spiritual things, because nothing is affected except with regard to something which is in some way suited to its nature. But there can be no sin when anyone is incited to good of the spiritual order, unless in such affection the rule of the superior be not kept. Such is precisely the sin of pride, not to be subject to a superior when subjection is due. Consequently, the first sin of the angel can be none other than pride. Yet as a consequence, it was possible for envy also to be in them, since for the appetite to tend to the desire of something involves on its part resistance to anything contrary. Now the envious man repines over the good possessed by another, inasmuch as he deems his neighbor's good to be a hindrance to his own. But another's good could not be deemed a hindrance to the good coveted by the wicked angel, except inasmuch as he coveted a singular existence which would cease to be singular because of the excellence of some other. So, after the sin of pride, there followed the evil of envy in the sinning angel, whereby he grieved over man's good, and also over the divine excellence, according as against the devil's will, God makes use of man for the divine glory. Reply Objection 1. The demons do not delight in the obscenities of the sins of the flesh, as if they themselves were disposed to carnal pleasures. It is wholly through envy that they take pleasure in all sorts of human sins, so far as these are hindrances to a man's good. Reply Objection 2. Avarice, considered as a special kind of sin, is the immoderate greed of temporal possessions which serve the use of human life, and which can be estimated in value of money. To these demons are not at all inclined, any more than they are to carnal pleasures. Consequently, 
avarice, properly so called, cannot be in them. But if every immoderate greed of possessing any created good be termed avarice, in this way avarice is contained under the pride which is in the demons. Anger implies passion, and so does concupiscence. Consequently, they can only exist metaphorically in the demons. Sloth is a kind of sadness, whereby a man becomes sluggish in spiritual exercises because they weary the body, which does not apply to the demons. So it is evident that pride and envy are the only spiritual sins which can be found in demons, yet so that envy is not to be taken for a passion, but for a will resisting the good of another. Reply Objection 3. Under envy and pride, as found in the demons, are comprised all other sins derived from them. Third Article 1. Question 63. Article 3. Whether the devil desired to be as God. Objection 1. It would seem that the devil did not desire to be as God. For what does not fall under apprehension does not fall under desire, because the good which is apprehended moves the appetite, whether sensible, rational, or intellectual, and sin consists only in such desire. But for any creature to be God's equal does not fall under apprehension, because it implies a contradiction. For if the finite equals the infinite, then it would itself be infinite. Therefore an angel could not desire to be as God. Objection 2. Further, the natural end can always be desired without sin. But to be likened unto God is the end to which every creature naturally tends. If, therefore, the angel desired to be as God, not by equality but by likeness, it would seem that he did not thereby sin. Objection 3. Further, the angel was created with greater fullness of wisdom than man, but no man save a fool ever makes choice of being the equal of an angel, still less of God, because choice regards only things which are possible, regarding which one takes deliberation. Therefore, much less did the angel sin by desiring to be as God. On the contrary, it is said in the person of the devil, Isaiah 14, 13, and 14, quote, I will ascend into heaven, I will be like the Most High, end quote. And Augustine, on eight questions from the Old Testament, 113, says that being, quote, inflated with pride, he wished to be called God. End quote. I answer that, without doubt the angel sinned by seeking to be as God, but this can be understood in two ways, first by equality, secondly by likeness. He could not seek to be as God in the first way, because by natural knowledge he knew that this was impossible, and there was no habit preceding his first sinful act, nor any passion fettering his mind, so as to lead him to choose what was impossible by failing in some particular, as sometimes happens in ourselves. And even supposing it were possible, it would be against the natural desire, because there exists in everything the natural desire of preserving its own nature, which would not be preserved were it to be changed into another nature. Consequently, no creature of a lower order can ever covet the grade of a higher nature, 
just as an ass does not desire to be a horse. For were it to be so upraised, it would cease to be itself. But herein the imagination plays us false, for one is liable to think that, because a man seeks to occupy a higher grade as to accidentals, which can increase without the destruction of the subject, he can also seek a higher grade of nature, to which he could not attain without ceasing to exist. Now it is quite evident that God surpasses the angels, not merely in accidentals, but also in degree of nature, and one angel another. Consequently, it is impossible for one angel of lower degree to desire equality with a higher, and still more to covet equality with God. To desire to be as God according to likeness can happen in two ways. In one way as to that likeness whereby everything is made to be likened unto God. And so if any one desire in this way to be godlike, he commits no sin, provided that he desires such likeness in proper order, that is to say that he may obtain it of God. But he would sin were he to desire to be like unto God even in the right way, as of his own, and not of God's power. In another way, one may desire to be like unto God in some respect which is not natural to one, as if one were to desire to create heaven and earth, which is proper to God, in which desire there would be sin. It was in this way that the devil desired to be as God, not that he desired to resemble God by being subject to no one else absolutely, for so he would be desiring his own not-being, since no creature can exist except by holding its existence under God. But he desired resemblance with God in this respect by desiring, as his last end of beatitude, something which he could attain by the virtue of his own nature, turning his appetite away from supernatural beatitude which is attained by God's grace or if he desired as his last end that likeness of God which is bestowed by grace, he sought to have it by the power of his own nature, and not from divine assistance according to God's ordering. This harmonizes with Anselm's opinion, who says, on the fall of the devil, for, that, quote, he sought that to which he would have come had he stood fast, end quote. These two views in a manner coincide, because according to both, he sought to have final beatitude of his own power, whereas this is proper to God alone. Since, then, what exists of itself is the cause of what exists of another, it follows from this, furthermore, that he sought to have dominion over others, wherein he also perversely wished to be like unto God. From this we have the answer to all the objections. Fourth Article 1, Question 63, Article 4. Whether any demons are naturally wicked? Objection 1. It would seem that some demons are naturally wicked. For Porphyry says, as quoted by Augustine, the City of God 10, 11, quote, There is a class of demons of crafty nature, pretending that they are gods and the souls of the dead, end quote. But to be deceitful is to be evil. Therefore some demons are naturally wicked. Objection 2. Further, as the angels are created by God, so are men. But some men are naturally wicked, of whom it is said, Wisdom 12.10, quote, Their malice is natural, end quote. 
Therefore some angels may be naturally wicked. Objection 3. Further, some irrational animals have wicked dispositions by nature. Thus the fox is naturally sly, and the wolf naturally rapacious. Yet they are God's creatures. Therefore, although the demons are God's creatures, they may be naturally wicked. On the contrary, Dionysius says, Divine Names 4, that, quote, The demons are not naturally wicked, end quote. I answer that. Everything which exists, so far as it exists and has a particular nature, tends naturally towards some good, since it comes from a good principle, because the effect always reverts to its principle. Now, a particular good may happen to have some evil connected with it. Thus, fire has this evil connected with it, that it consumes other things. But with the universal good, no evil can be connected. If, then, there be anything whose nature is inclined towards some particular good, it can tend naturally to some evil, not as evil, but accidentally, as connected with some good. But if anything of its nature be inclined to good in general, then of its own nature it cannot be inclined to evil. Now it is manifest that every intellectual nature is inclined towards good in general, which it can apprehend and which is the object of the will. Hence, since the demons are intellectual substances, they can in no wise have a natural inclination towards any evil whatsoever. Consequently, they cannot be naturally evil. Reply Objection 1. Augustine rebukes Porphyry for saying that the demons are naturally deceitful, himself maintaining that they are not naturally so, but of their own will. Now the reason why Porphyry held that they are naturally deceitful was that, as he contended, demons are animals with a sensitive nature. Now the sensitive nature is inclined towards some particular good, with which evil may be connected. In this way, then, it can have a natural inclination to evil, yet only accidentally, inasmuch as evil is connected with good. Reply Objection 2. The malice of some men can be called natural, either because of custom, which is a second nature, or on account of the natural proclivity on the part of the sensitive nature to some inordinate passion, as some people are said to be naturally wrathful or lustful, but not on the part of the intellectual nature. Reply Objection 3. Brute beasts have a natural inclination in their sensitive nature towards certain particular goods, with which certain evils are connected. Thus the fox, in seeking its food, has a natural inclination to do so with a certain skill coupled with deceit. Wherefore, it is not evil in the fox to be sly, since it is natural to him, as it is not evil in the dog to be fierce, as Dionysius observes. Divine Names 4. Fifth Article 1, Question 63, Article 5 whether the devil was wicked by the fault of his own will in the first instant of his creation. Objection 1. It would seem that the devil was wicked by the fault of his own will in the first instant of his creation. For it is said of the devil, John 8.44, He was a murderer from the beginning. End quote. Objection 2. 
Further, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 1.15, the lack of form in the creature did not precede its formation in order of time, but merely in order of nature. Now, according to him, the literal meaning of Genesis 2.8, the heaven, which is said to have been created in the beginning, signifies the angelic nature, while as yet not fully formed. And when it is said that God said, quote, be light made, and light was made, end quote, we are to understand the full formation of the angel by turning to the word. Consequently, the nature of the angel was created, and light was made in the one instant. But at the same moment that light was made, it was made distinct from darkness, whereby the angels who sinned are denoted. Therefore, in the first instant of their creation, some of the angels were made blessed, and some sinned. Objection 3. Further, sin is opposed to merit, but some intellectual nature can merit in the first instant of its creation, as the soul of Christ, or also the good angels. Therefore the demons likewise could sin in the first instant of their creation. Objection 4. Further, the angelic nature is more powerful than the corporeal nature. But a corporeal thing begins to have its operation in the first instant of its creation, as fire begins to move upwards in the first instant it is produced. Therefore the angel could also have his operation in the first instant of his creation. Now this operation was either ordinate or inordinate. If ordinate, then since he had grace, he thereby merited beatitude. But with the angels the reward follows immediately upon merit, as was said above, question 62, article 5. Consequently, they would have become blessed at once, and so would never have sinned, which is false. It remains, then, that they sinned by inordinate action in their first instant. On the contrary, it is written, Genesis 1, 31, quote, God saw all the things that he had made, and they were very good, end quote. But among them were also the demons, therefore the demons were at some time good. I answer that. Some have maintained that the demons were wicked straightway in the first instant of their creation, not by their nature, but by the sin of their own will, because as soon as he was made, the devil refused righteousness. To this opinion, as Augustine says, the city of God, 11.13, if anyone subscribes, he does not agree with those Manichaean heretics who say that the devil's nature is evil of itself, since this opinion, however, is in contradiction with the authority of Scripture. For it is said of the devil under the figure of the prince of Babylon, Isaiah 14.12, How art thou fallen, O Lucifer, who didst rise in the morning? End quote. And it is said to the devil in the person of the king of Tyre, Ezekiel 28.13, Thou wast in the pleasures of the paradise of God. End quote. Consequently, this opinion was reasonably rejected by the masters as erroneous. Hence others have said that the angels in the first instant of their creation could have sinned but did not. Yet this view also is repudiated by some. Because when two operations follow one upon the other, 
it seems impossible for each operation to terminate in the one instant. Now it is clear that the angel's sin was an act subsequent to his creation, but the term of the creative act is the angel's very being, while the term of the sinful act is the being wicked. It seems then an impossibility for the angel to have been wicked in the first instant of his existence. This argument, however, does not satisfy, for it holds good only in such movements as are measured by time and take place successively. Thus, if local movement allows a change, then the change and the local movement cannot be terminated in the same instant. But if the changes are instantaneous, then all at once and in the same instant, there can be a term to the first and the second change. Thus, in the same instant in which the moon is lit up by the sun, the atmosphere is lit up by the moon. Now, it is manifest that creation is instantaneous. So also is the movement of free will in the angels. For, as has been already stated, they have no occasion for comparison or discursive reasoning. Question 58, Article 3. Consequently, there is nothing to hinder the term of creation and of free will from existing in the same instant. We must therefore reply that, on the contrary, it was impossible for the angel to sin in the first instant by an inordinate act of free will. For although a thing can begin to act in the first instant of its experience, Nevertheless, that operation which begins with the existence comes of the agent from which it drew its nature, just as upward movement in fire comes of its productive cause. Therefore, if there be anything which derives its nature from a defective cause, which can be the cause of a defective action, it can in the first instance of its existence have a defective operation, just as the leg, which is defective from birth through a defect in the principle of generation, begins at once to limp. But the agent which brought the angels into existence, namely God, cannot be the cause of sin. Consequently, it cannot be said that the devil was wicked in the first instant of his creation. Reply Objection 1 As Augustine says, the City of God, 11.15, when it is stated that, quote, the devil sins from the beginning, end quote, quote, he is not to be thought of as sinning from the beginning wherein he was created, but from the beginning of sin, end quote. That is to say, because he never went back from his sin. Reply Objection 2. That distinction of light and darkness, whereby the sins of the demons are understood by the term darkness, must be taken as according to God's foreknowledge. Hence Augustine says, the City of God, 11.15, that, quote, He alone could discern light and darkness, who also could foreknow, before they fell, those who would fall. Reply Objection 3. All that is in merit is from God, and consequently an angel could merit in the first instant of his creation. The same reason does not hold good of sin, as has been said. Reply Objection 4. God did not distinguish between the angels before the turning away of some of them and the turning of others to himself, as Augustine says, the City of God 11.15. Therefore, 
as all were created in grace, all merited in their first instant, but some of them at once placed an impediment to their beatitude, thereby destroying their preceding merit, and consequently they were deprived of the beatitude which they had merited. Sixth Article 1. Question 63. Article 6. Whether there was any interval between the creation and the fall of the angel. Objection 1. It would seem that there was some interval between the angel's creation and his fall. For it is said, Ezekiel 28.15, Thou didst walk perfect. Vulgate, quote, Thou hast walked in the midst of the stones of fire. Thou wast perfect. End quote. In thy ways from the day of thy creation until iniquity was found in thee. End quote. But since walking is continuous movement, it requires an interval. Therefore there was some interval between the devil's creation and his fall. Objection 2. Further, Origen says, first homily about Ezekiel, that, quote, the serpent of old did not from the first walk upon his breast and belly, end quote, which refers to his sin. Therefore the devil did not sin at once after the first instant of his creation. Objection 3. Further, capability of sinning is common alike to man and angel, but there was some delay between man's formation and his sin, therefore for the like reason there was some interval between the devil's formation and his sin. Objection 4. Further, the instant wherein the devil sinned was distinct from the instant wherein he was created, but there is a middle time between every two instants. Therefore, there was an interval between his creation and his fall. On the contrary, it is said of the devil, John 8.44, He stood not in the truth. End quote. And as Augustine says, the city of God, 11.15, We must understand this in the sense that he was in the truth, but did not remain in it. End quote. I answer that, there is a twofold opinion on this point, but the more probable one, which is also more in harmony with the teachings of the saints, is that the devil sinned at once after the first instant of his creation. This must be maintained if it be held that he elicited an act of free will in the first instant of his creation, and that he was created in grace, as we have said, question 62, article 3. For since the angels attained beatitude by one meritorious act, as was said above, question 62, article 5, if the devil created in grace, merited in the first instant, he would at once have received beatitude after that first instant, if he had not placed an impediment by sinning. If, however, it be contended that the angel was not created in grace, or that he could not elicit an act of free will in the first instant, then there is nothing to prevent some interval being interposed between his creation and fall. Reply Objection 1. Sometimes in Holy Scripture, spiritual instantaneous movements are represented by corporeal movements, which are measured by time. In this way, by walking, we are to understand the movement of free will tending towards good. 
Reply Objection 2. Origen says, quote, The serpent of old did not from the first walk upon his breast and belly, end quote, because of the first instant in which he was not wicked. Reply Objection 3. An angel has an inflexible free will after once choosing. Consequently, if after the first instant in which he had a natural movement to good, he had not at once placed a barrier to beatitude, he would have been confirmed in good. It is not so with man, and therefore the argument does not hold good. Reply Objection 4. It is true to say that there is a middle time between every two instants, so far as time is continuous, as it is proved Physics 6, Text 2. But in the angels who are not subject to the heavenly movement, which is primarily measured by continuous time, time is taken to mean the succession of their mental acts or of their affections, so the first instant in the angels is understood to respond to the operation of the angelic mind, whereby it introspects itself by its evening knowledge, because on the first day evening is mentioned, but not morning. This operation was good in them all. For such operations some of them were converted to the praise of the word by their morning knowledge, while others, absorbed in themselves, became night. Quote, swelling up with pride, end quote, as Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 4.24. Hence the first act was common to them all, but in their second they were separated. Consequently, they were all of them good in the first instant, but in the second the good were set apart from the wicked. Seventh article, 1, question 63, article 7 whether the highest angel among those who sinned was the highest of all. Objection 1. It would seem that the highest among the angels who sinned was not the highest of all. For it is stated, Ezekiel 28.14, Thou wast a cherub stretched out and protecting, and I set thee in the holy mountain of God. End quote. Now the order of the cherubim, is under the order of the seraphim, as Dionysius says, on the heavenly hierarchy 6-7. Therefore the highest angel among those who sinned was not the highest of all. Objection 2. Further, God made intellectual nature in order that it might attain to beatitude. If therefore the highest of the angels sinned, it follows that the divine ordinance was frustrated in the noblest creature which is unfitting. Objection 3. Further, the more a subject is inclined towards anything, so much the less can it fall away from it. But the higher an angel is, so much the more is he inclined towards God. Therefore, so much the less can he turn away from God by sinning, and so it seems that the angel who sinned was not the highest of all, but one of the lower angels. On the contrary, Gregory, homily 34 on the Gospels, says that the chief angel who sinned, quote, being set over all the hosts of angels, surpassed them in brightness, and was by comparison the most illustrious among them, end quote. I answer that, 
two things have to be considered in sin, namely the proneness to sin and the motive for sinning. If then in the angels we consider the proneness to sin, it seems that the higher angels were less likely to sin than the lower. On this account, Damascene says, on the Orthodox faith too, that the highest of those who sinned was set over the terrestrial order. This opinion seems to agree with the view of the Platonists, which Augustine quotes, the city of God, 7, 6 and 7, 10, 9, 10 and 11. For they said that all the gods were good, whereas some of the demons were good and some bad, naming as gods the intellectual substances which are above the lunar sphere, and calling by the name of demons the intellectual substances which are beneath it, yet higher than men in the order of nature. Nor is this opinion to be rejected as contrary to faith, because the whole corporeal creation is governed by God through the angels, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 3, 4, and 5. Consequently, there is nothing to prevent us from saying that the lower angels were divinely set aside for presiding over the lower bodies, the higher over the higher bodies, and the highest to stand before God. And in this sense, Damascene says, on the Orthodox faith, too, that they who fell were of the lower grade of angels, yet in that order some of them remained good. But if the motive for sinning be considered, we find that it existed in the higher angels more than in the lower. For, as has been said, Article 2, the demon's sin was pride, and the motive of pride is excellence, which was greater in the higher spirits. Hence Gregory says that he who sinned was the very highest of all. This seems to be the more probable view, because the angel's sin did not come of any proneness, but of free choice alone. Consequently, that argument seems to have the more weight which is drawn from the motive in sinning. Yet this must not be prejudicial to the other view, because there might be some motive for sinning in him also who was the chief of the lower angels. Reply Objection 1. Cherubim is interpreted, quote, fullness of knowledge, end quote, while seraphim means, quote, those who are on fire, end quote, or, quote, who set on fire, end quote. Consequently, cherubim is derived from knowledge, which is compatible with mortal sin, but seraphim is derived from the heat of charity, which is incompatible with mortal sin. Therefore, the first angel who sinned is called not a seraph, but a cherub. Reply Objection 2. The divine intention is not frustrated either in those who sin or in those who are saved. For God knows beforehand the end of both, and he procures glory from both, saving these of his goodness and punishing those of his justice. But the intellectual creature, when it sins, falls away from its due end. Nor is this unfitting in any exalted creature, because the intellectual creature was so made by God that it lies within its own will to act for its end. Reply Objection 3. 
However great was the inclination towards good in the highest angel, there was no necessity imposed upon him. Consequently, it was in his power not to follow it. Eighth Article, 163. Article 8. Whether the sin of the highest angel was the cause of the other's sinning. Objection 1. It would seem that the sin of the highest angel was not the cause of the other's sinning, for the cause precedes the effect. But as Damascene observes, on the Orthodox faith, too, they all sinned at one time. Therefore the sin of one was not the cause of the other's sinning. Objection 2. Further, an angel's first sin can only be pride, as was shown above, Article 2. But pride seeks excellence. Now it is more contrary to excellence for any one to be subject to an inferior than to a superior, and so it does not appear that the angels sinned by desiring to be subject to a higher angel rather than to God. Yet the sin of one angel would have been the cause of the other's sinning if he had induced them to be his subjects. Therefore it does not appear that the sin of the highest angel was the cause of the other's sinning. Objection 3. Further, it is a greater sin to wish to be subject to another against God than to wish to be over another against God, because there is less motive for sinning. If, therefore, the sin of the foremost angel was the cause of the other's sinning, in that he induced them to subject themselves to him, then the lower angels would have sinned more deeply than the highest one, which is contrary to a gloss on Psalms 103, 26. Quote, this dragon which thou hast formed, he who was the more excellent than the rest in nature, became the greater in malice. End quote. Therefore the sin of the highest angel was not the cause of the other's sinning. On the contrary, it is said, Revelation 12, 4, that the dragon drew with him, quote, the third part of the stars of heaven, end quote. I answer that, the sin of the highest angel was the cause of the others sinning, not as compelling them, but as inducing them by a kind of exhortation. A token thereof appears in this, that all the demons are subjects of that highest one, as is evident from our Lord's words, quote, Go, vulgate, quote, depart from me, end quote. You cursed into everlasting fire which was prepared for the devil and his angels, end quote. Matthew 25, 41. For the order of divine justice exacts that whosoever consents to another's evil suggestion shall be subjected to him in his punishment, according to Second Peter 2.19, quote, By whom a man is overcome, of the same also is he the slave. End quote. Reply Objection 1. Although the demons all sinned in the one instant, yet the sin of one could be the cause of the rest sinning. For the angel needs no delay of time for choice, exhortation, or consent as man who requires deliberation in order to choose and consent, and vocal speech in order to exhort, both of which are the work of time. 
And it is evident that even man begins to speak in the very instant when he takes thought. And in the last instant of speech, another who catches his meaning can assent to what is said, as is especially evident with regard to primary concepts, quote, which every one accepts directly they are heard, end quote, Boethius on the Hebdomads. Taking away, then, the time for speech and deliberation which is required in us, in the same instant in which the highest angel expressed his affection by intelligible speech, it was possible for the others to consent thereto. Reply Objection 2. Other things being equal, the proud would rather be subject to a superior than to an inferior. Yet he chooses rather to be subject to an inferior than to a superior, if he can procure an advantage under an inferior which he cannot under a superior. Consequently, it was not against the demon's pride for them to wish to serve an inferior by yielding to his rule, for they wanted to have him as their prince and leader, so that they might attain their ultimate beatitude of their own natural powers, especially because in the order of nature, they were even then subject to the highest angel. Reply Objection 3. As was observed above, question 62, article 6, an angel has nothing in him to retard his action, and with his whole might he is moved to whatsoever he is moved, be it good or bad. Consequently, since the highest angel had greater natural energy than the lower angels, he fell into sin with intenser energy, and therefore he became the greater in malice. Ninth Article 1. Question 63. Article 9. Whether those who sinned were as many as those who remained firm? Objection 1. It would seem that more angels sinned than stood firm. For, as the philosopher says, Ethics 2, 6, quote, Evil is in many, but good is in few. End quote. Objection 2. Further, justice and sin are to be found in the same way in men and in angels. But there are more wicked men to be found than good, according to Ecclesiastes 1.15. The number of fools is infinite. End quote. Therefore, for the same reason, it is so with the angels. Objection 3. Further, the angels are distinguished according to persons and orders. Therefore, if more angelic persons stood firm, it would appear that those who sinned were not from all the orders. On the contrary, it is said, 4 Kings 6.16, There are more with us than with them, end quote, which is expounded of the good angels who are with us to aid us, and the wicked spirits who are our foes. I answer that, more angels stood firm than sinned, because sin is contrary to the natural inclination, while that which is against the natural order happens with less frequency, for nature procures its effect either always or more often than not. Reply Objection 1. The philosopher is speaking with regard to men, in whom evil comes to pass from seeking after sensible pleasures, 
which are known to most men, and from forsaking the good dictated by reason, which good is known to the few. In the angels there is only an intellectual nature, hence the argument does not hold. And from this we have the answer to the second difficulty. Reply Objection 3. According to those who hold that the chief devil belonged to the lower order of the angels, who are set over earthly affairs, it is evident that some of every order did not fall, but only those of the lowest order. According to those who maintain that the chief devil was of the highest order, it is probable that some fell of every order, just as men are taken up into every order to supply for the angelic ruin. In this view, the liberty of free will is more established, which in every degree of creature can be turned to evil. In the sacred scripture, however, the names of some orders, as of seraphim and thrones, are not attributed to demons, since they are derived from the ardor of love and from God's indwelling, which are not consistent with mortal sin. Yet the names of cherubim, powers, and principalities are attributed to them, because these names are derived from knowledge and from power, which can be common to both good and bad. End of question 63. Recording by Tony Russell. Question 64 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the angels and on the six days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the angels and on the six days by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 64, The Punishment of the Demons, in four articles. It now remains as a sequel to deal with the punishment of the demons, under which heading there are four points of inquiry. 1. Of their darkness of intellect. 2. Of their obstinacy of will. 3. Of their grief. 4. Of their place of punishment. First article. 1. Question 64. Article 1. Whether the demon's intellect is darkened by privation of the knowledge of all truth. Objection 1. It would seem that the demon's intellect is darkened by being deprived of the knowledge of all truth. For if they knew any truth at all, they would most of all know themselves, which is to know separated substances. But this is not in keeping with their unhappiness. For this seems to belong to great happiness, insomuch as that some writers have assigned a man's last happiness the knowledge of the separated substances. Therefore the demons are deprived of all knowledge of truth. Objection 2. Further, what is most manifest in its nature seems to be specially manifest in the angels, whether good or bad. That the same is not manifest with regard to ourselves comes from the weakness of our intellect which draws its knowledge from phantasms, as it comes from the weakness of its eye that the owl cannot behold the light of the sun. But the demons cannot know God, who is most manifest of himself. 
because he is the sovereign truth, and this is because they are not clean of heart, whereby alone can God be seen. Therefore neither can they know other things. Objection 3. Further, according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 4.22, the proper knowledge of the angels is twofold, namely morning and evening. But the demons have no morning knowledge, because they do not see things in the word. Nor have they the evening knowledge, because this evening knowledge refers the things known to the Creator's praise. Hence, after evening comes morning. Genesis 1. Therefore, the demons can have no knowledge of things. Objection 4. Further, the angels at their creation knew the mystery of the kingdom of God, as Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 5.19, the city of God 11. But the demons are deprived of such knowledge, quote, for if they had known it, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory, end quote, as is said 1 Corinthians 2.8. Therefore, for the same reason, they are deprived of all other knowledge of truth. Objection 5. Further, Whatever truth anyone knows is known either naturally, as we know first principles, or by deriving it from someone else, as we know by learning, or by long experience, as the things we learn by discovery. Now, the demons cannot know the truth by their own nature because, as Augustine says, the city of God, 1133, the good angels are separated from them as light is from darkness, and every manifestation is made through light, as is said Ephesians 5.13. In like manner they cannot learn by revelation, nor by learning from the good angels, because, quote, there is no fellowship of light with darkness, vulgate what fellowship hath, end quote, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Nor can they learn by long experience, because experience comes of the senses, Consequently, there is no knowledge of truth in them. On the contrary, Dionysius says, Divine Names 4, that, quote, certain gifts were bestowed upon the demons which, we say, have not been changed at all, but remain entire and most brilliant, end quote. Now, the knowledge of truth stands among those natural gifts. Consequently, there is some knowledge of truth in them. I answer that. The knowledge of truth is twofold, one which comes of nature and one which comes of grace. The knowledge which comes of grace is likewise twofold. The first is purely speculative, as when divine secrets are imparted to an individual. The other is effective, and produces love for God, which knowledge properly belongs to the gift of wisdom. Of these three kinds of knowledge, the first was neither taken away nor lessened in the demons, for it follows from the very nature of the angel, who, according to his nature, is an intellect or mind, since on account of the simplicity of his substance nothing can be withdrawn from his nature, so as to punish him by subtracting from his natural powers, as a man is punished by being deprived of a hand or a foot or of something else. Therefore Dionysius says, Divine Names 9, that the natural gifts remain entire in them. Consequently, their natural knowledge was not diminished. 
The second kind of knowledge, however, which comes of grace, and consists in speculation, has not been utterly taken away from them, but lessened. Because of these divine secrets, only so much is revealed to them as is necessary. And that is done either by means of the angels, or, quote, through some temporal workings of divine power, end quote, as Augustine says, the City of God, 9.21. But not in the same degree as to the holy angels, to whom many more things are revealed, and more fully, in the word himself. But of the third knowledge, as likewise of charity, they are utterly deprived. Reply Objection 1. Happiness consists in self-application to something higher. The separated substances are above us in the order of nature. Hence man can have happiness of a kind by knowing the separated substances, although his perfect happiness consists in knowing the first substance, namely God. But it is quite natural for one separate substance to know another, as it is natural for us to know sensible natures. Hence, a man's happiness does not consist in knowing sensible natures, so neither does the angel's happiness consist in knowing separated substances. Reply Objection 2. What is most manifest in its nature is hidden from us by its surpassing the bounds of our intellect, and not merely because our intellect draws knowledge from phantasms. Now the divine substance surpasses the proportion not only of the human intellect, but even of the angelic. Consequently, not even an angel can of his own nature know God's substance. Yet on account of the perfection of his intellect, he can of his nature have a higher knowledge of God than man can have. Such knowledge of God remains also in the demons. Although they do not possess the purity which comes with grace, nevertheless they have purity of nature. And this suffices for the knowledge of God which belongs to them from their nature. Reply Objection 3. The creature is darkness in comparison with the excellence of the divine light, and therefore the creature's knowledge in its own nature is called evening knowledge. For the evening is akin to darkness, yet it possesses some light. But when the light fails utterly, then it is night. So then the knowledge of things in their own nature when referred to the praise of the Creator, as it is in the good angels, has something of the divine light and can be called evening knowledge. But if it be not referred to God, as is the case with the demons, it is not called evening, but nocturnal knowledge. Accordingly, we read in Genesis 1.5 that the darkness which God separated from the light Quote, he called night. End quote. Reply Objection 4. All the angels had some knowledge from the very beginning respecting the mystery of God's kingdom, which found its completion in Christ, and most of all from the moment when they were beatified by the vision of the Word, which vision the demons never had. Yet all the angels did not fully and equally apprehend it. Hence, the demons much less fully understood the mystery of the Incarnation, when Christ was in the world. For, as Augustine observes, the City of God, 9.21, quote, It was not manifested to them as it was to the holy angels, 
who enjoy a participated eternity of the word, but it was made known by some temporal effects so as to strike terror into them, end quote. For had they fully and certainly known that he was the Son of God and the effect of his passion, they would never have procured the crucifixion of the Lord of glory. Reply, Objection 5. The demons know a truth in three ways. First of all, by the subtlety of their nature. For although they are darkened by privation of the light of grace, yet they are enlightened by the light of their intellectual nature. Secondly, by revelation from the holy angels. For while not agreeing with them in conformity of will, they do agree, nevertheless, by their likeness of intellectual nature, according to which they can accept what is manifested by others. Thirdly, they know by long experience, not as deriving it from the senses, but when the similitude of their innate intelligible species is completed in individual things, they know some things as present, which they previously did not know would come to pass, as we said when dealing with the knowledge of the angels. Question 57, Article 3, the third. Second Article, 1, Question 64, Article 2. Whether the will of the demons is obstinate in evil? Objection 1. It would seem that the will of the demons is not obstinate in evil. For liberty of will belongs to the nature of an intellectual being, which nature remains in the demons, as we said above, Article 1. But liberty of will is directly and firstly ordained to good rather than to evil. Therefore the demon's will is not so obstinate in evil as not to be able to return to what is good. Objection 2. Further, since God's mercy is infinite, it is greater than the demon's malice, which is finite. But no one returns from the malice of sin to the goodness of justice, save through God's mercy. Therefore the demons can likewise return from their state of malice to the state of justice. Objection 3. Further, if the demons have a will obstinate in evil, then their will would be especially obstinate in the sin whereby they fell. But that sin namely, pride, is in them no longer, because the motive for the sin no longer endures, namely, excellence. Therefore, the demon is not obstinate in malice. Objection 4. Further, Gregory says, Moral Poems 4, that man can be reinstated by another, since he fell through another. But, as was observed already, question 63, article 8, the lower demons fell through the highest one, therefore their fall can be repaired by another, consequently they are not obstinate in malice. Objection 5. Further, whoever is obstinate in malice never performs any good work, but the demon performs some good works, for he confesses the truth, saying to Christ, quote, I know who thou art, the Holy One of God, end quote. Mark 1. 24. Quote, the demons, end quote, also, quote, believe and tremble, end quote. James 2.19. And Dionysius observes, Divine Names 4, that, quote, they desire what is good and best, which is to be, to live, to understand, end quote. Therefore, they are not obstinate in malice. 
On the contrary, it is said, Psalms 73.23, The pride of them that hate thee ascendeth continually. End quote. And this is understood of the demons. Therefore they remain ever obstinate in their malice. I answer that. It was Origen's opinion, on first principles 1, 6, that every will of the creature can by reason of free will be inclined to good and evil, with the exception of the soul of Christ on account of the union of the word. Such a statement deprives angels and saints of true beatitude, because everlasting stability is of the very nature of true beatitude. Hence it is termed life everlasting. It is also contrary to the authority of sacred scripture, which declares that demons and wicked men shall be sent into everlasting punishment, and the good be brought into everlasting life. Consequently, such an opinion must be considered erroneous, while according to Catholic faith, it must be held firmly both that the will of the good angels is confirmed in good, and that the will of the demons is obstinate in evil. We must seek for the cause of this obstinacy, not in the gravity of the sin, but in the condition of their nature or state. For as Damascene says, on the Orthodox faith, too, quote, Death is to men what the fall is to angels. End quote. Now it is clear that all the mortal sins of men, grave or less grave, are pardonable before death, whereas after death they are without remission and endure forever. To find the cause, then, of this obstinacy, it must be borne in mind that the appetitive power is in all things proportioned to the apprehensive, whereby it is moved, as the movable by its mover. For the sensitive appetite seeks a particular good, while the will seeks the universal good, as was said above, question 59, article 1, as also the sense apprehends particular objects, while the intellect considers universals. Now the angel's apprehension differs from man's in this respect, that the angel by his intellect apprehends immovably, as we apprehend immovably first principles which are the object of the habit of intelligence, whereas man by his reason apprehends movably, passing from one consideration to another, and having the way open by which he may proceed to either of two opposites. Consequently, man's will adheres to a thing movably, and with the power of forsaking it and of clinging to the opposite, whereas the angel's will adheres fixedly and immovably. Therefore, if his will be considered before its adhesion, it can freely adhere either to this or to its opposite, namely in such things as he does not will naturally. But after he has once adhered, he clings immovably. So it is customary to say that man's free will is flexible to the opposite both before and after choice, but the angel's free will is flexible either opposite before the choice, but not after. Therefore the good angels who adhered to justice were confirmed therein, whereas the wicked ones, sinning, are obstinate in sin. Later on we shall treat of the obstinacy of men who are damned. Supplement Question 98, Articles 1 and 2. Reply Objection 1. 
The good and wicked angels have free will, but according to the manner and condition of their state, as has been said. Reply Objection 2. God's mercy delivers from sin those who repent, but such as are not capable of repenting cling immovably to sin and are not delivered by the divine mercy. Reply 3. The devil's first sin still remains in him according to desire, although not as to his believing that he can obtain what he desired. Even so, if a man were to believe that he can commit murder and wills to commit it, and afterwards the power is taken from him, nevertheless the will to murder can stay with him, so that he would he had done it, or still would do it if he could. Reply Objection 4. The fact that man sinned from another's suggestion is not the whole cause of man's sin being pardonable. Consequently, the argument does not hold good. Reply Objection 5. A demon's act is twofold. One comes of deliberate will, and this is properly called his own act. Such an act on the demon's part is always wicked, because although at times he does something good, yet he does not do it well. As when he tells the truth in order to deceive, and when he believes and confesses, yet not willingly, but compelled by the evidence of things. Another kind of act is natural to the demon. This can be good, and bears witness to the goodness of nature. Yet he abuses such good acts to evil purpose. Third Article, 1, Question 64, Article 3. Whether there is sorrow in the demons? Objection 1. It would seem that there is no sorrow in the demons, for since sorrow and joy are opposites, they cannot be together in the same subject. But there is joy in the demons, for Augustine, writing against the Manichees, on Genesis against the Manichees 2.17, says, quote, The devil has power over them who despise God's commandments, and he rejoices over this sinister power. End quote. Therefore, there is no sorrow in the demons. Objection 2. Further, sorrow is the cause of fear, for those things cause fear while they are future, which cause sorrow when they are present. But there is no fear in the demons, according to Job 41.24, who was made to fear no one, end quote. therefore there is no grief in the demons. Objection 3. Further, it is a good thing to be sorry for evil. But the demons can do no good action, therefore they cannot be sorry, at least for the evil of sin, which applies to the worm of conscience. On the contrary, the demon's sin is greater than man's sin. But man is punished with sorrow on account of the pleasure taken in sin, according to Revelation 18.7. Quote, as much as she hath glorified herself, and lived in delicacies, so much torment and sorrow give ye to her. End quote. Consequently, much more is the devil punished with the grief of sorrow, because he especially glorified himself. I answer that. Fear, sorrow, joy, and the like, so far as they are passions, cannot exist in the demons. For thus they are proper to the sensitive appetite, which is a power in a corporeal organ. According, however, 
as they denote simple acts of the will, they can be in the demons. And it must be said that there is sorrow in them, because sorrow, as denoting a simple act of the will, is nothing else than the resistance of the will to what is or to what is not. Now it is evident that the demons would wish many things not to be, which are, and others to be, which are not, for out of envy they would wish others to be damned who are saved. Consequently, sorrow must be said to exist in them, and especially because it is of the very notion of punishment for it to be repugnant to the will. Moreover, they are deprived of happiness, which they desire naturally, and their wicked will is curbed in many respects. Reply Objection 1. Joy and sorrow about the same thing are opposites, but not about different things. Hence there is nothing to hinder a man from being sorry for one thing and joyful for another, especially so far as sorrow and joy imply simple acts of the will, because not merely in different things, but even in one and the same thing, there can be something that we will and something that we will not. Reply Objection 2. As there is sorrow in the demons over present evil, so also there is fear of future evil. Now, when it is said, quote, He was made to fear no one, end quote, this is to be understood of the fear of God which restrains from sin. For it is written elsewhere that, quote, The devils believe and tremble, end quote. James 2.19 Reply Objection 3 to be sorry for the evil of sin on account of the sin bears witness to the goodness of the will to which the evil of sin is opposed. But to be sorry for the evil of punishment, or for the evil of sin on account of the punishment, bears witness to the goodness of nature to which the evil of punishment is opposed. Hence Augustine says, the city of God, 19.13, that, quote, sorrow for good lost by punishment is the witness to a good nature, end quote. Consequently, since the demon has a perverse and obstinate will, he is not sorry for the evil of sin. Fourth Article 1. Question 64. Article 4. Whether our atmosphere is the demon's place of punishment. Objection 1. It would seem that this atmosphere is not the demon's place of punishment, for a demon is a spiritual nature, but a spiritual nature is not affected by place, therefore there is no place of punishment for demons. Objection 2. Further, man's sin is not graver than the demons, but man's place of punishment is hell. Much more, therefore, is it the demon's place of punishment, and consequently not the darksome atmosphere. Objection 3. Further, the demons are punished with the pain of fire, but there is no fire in the darksome atmosphere. Therefore, the darksome atmosphere is not the place of punishment for the demons. On the contrary, Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 3.10, that, quote, the darksome atmosphere is as a prison to the demons until the judgment day, end quote. I answer that, the angels in their own nature stand midway between God and men. Now the order of divine providence so disposes that it procures the welfare of the inferior orders through the superior, 
But man's welfare is disposed by divine providence in two ways. First of all, directly, when a man is brought unto good and withheld from evil, and this is fittingly done through the good angels. In another way, indirectly, as when any one assailed is exercised by fighting against opposition, it was fitting for this procuring of man's welfare to be brought about through the wicked spirits, lest they should cease to be of service in the natural order. Consequently, a twofold place of punishment is due to the demons, one by reason of their sin, and this is hell, and another in order that they may tempt men, and thus the darksome atmosphere is their due place of punishment. Now the procuring of men's salvation is prolonged even to the judgment day. Consequently, the ministry of the angels in wrestling with demons endure until then. Hence, until then, the good angels are sent to us here, and the demons are in this dark atmosphere for our trial, although some of them are even now in hell to torment those whom they have led astray, just as some of the good angels are with the holy souls in heaven. But after the judgment day, all the wicked, both men and angels, will be in hell, and the good in heaven. Reply Objection 1. A place is not penal to angel or soul as if affecting the nature by changing it, but as affecting the will by saddening it, because the angel or the soul apprehends that it is in a place not agreeable to its will. Reply Objection 2. One soul is not set over another in the order of nature, as the demons are over men in the order of nature. Consequently, there is no parallel. Reply Objection 3. Some have maintained that the pain of sense for demons and souls is postponed until the judgment day, and that the beatitude of the saints is likewise postponed until the judgment day. But this is erroneous and contrary to the teaching of the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 5, 1, quote, If our earthly house of this habitation be dissolved, we have a house in heaven. End quote. Others again, while not admitting the same of souls, admit it as to demons. But it is better to say that the same judgment is passed upon wicked souls and wicked angels, even as on good souls and good angels. Consequently, it must be said that, although a heavenly place belongs to the glory of the angels, yet their glory is not lessened by their coming to us, for they consider that place to be their own. In the same way, as we say that the bishop's honor is not lessened while he is not actually sitting on his throne. In like manner it must be said that although the demons are not actually bound within the fire of hell, while they are in this dark atmosphere. Nevertheless, their punishment is none the less, because they know that such confinement is their due. Hence it is said in a gloss upon James 3, 6, quote, They carry fire of hell with them wherever they go, end quote. Nor is the contrary to what is said, Luke 8, 31, quote, They besought the Lord not to cast them into the abyss, End quote. For they asked for this, deeming it to be a punishment for them to be cast out of a place where they could injure men. Hence it is stated, quote, They, Vulgate, he, 
besought him that he would not expel them, vulgate him, out of the country, end quote. Mark 5, 10. End of question 64, recording by Tony Russell. Question 65 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 65. The Work of Creation of Corporeal Creatures, in four articles. From the consideration of spiritual creatures we proceed to that of corporeal creatures, in the production of which, as Holy Scripture makes mention, three works are found, namely, the work of creation, as given in the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote. The work of distinction, as given in the words, quote, he divided the light from the darkness, and the waters that are above the firmament from the waters that are under the firmament, end quote. And the work of adornment, expressed thus, quote, Let there be lights in the firmament, end quote. First, then, we must consider the work of creation, secondly, the work of distinction, and thirdly, the work of adornment. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. One whether corporeal creatures are from God. 2. Whether they are created on account of God's goodness. 3. Whether they were created by God through the medium of the angels. 4. Whether the forms of bodies are from the angels or immediately from God. First Article 1. Question 65. Article 1. Whether corporeal creatures are from God. Objection 1. It would seem that corporeal creatures are not from God, for it is said, Ecclesiastes 3.14, I have learned that all the works which God hath made continue forever. End quote. But visible bodies do not continue forever, for it is said, 2 Corinthians 4.18, The things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. End quote. Therefore, God did not make visible bodies. Objection 2. Further, it is said, Genesis 1, 31, quote, God saw all things that he had made, and they were very good. End quote. But corporeal creatures are evil, since we find them harmful in many ways, as may be seen in serpents, in the sun's heat, and other things. Now a thing is called evil in so far as it is harmful. Corporeal creatures, therefore, are not from God. Objection 3. Further, what is from God does not withdraw us from God, but leads us to Him. But corporeal creatures withdraw us from God. Hence the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 4.18, While we look not at the things which are seen, End quote. Corporeal creatures, therefore, are not from God. 
On the contrary, it is said, Psalms 145, 6, quote, Who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all things that are in them, end quote. I answer that, certain heretics maintain that visible things are not created by the good God, but by an evil principle, and allege in proof of their error the words of the Apostle, 2 Corinthians 4, 4, quote, The God of this world hath blinded the minds of unbelievers, end quote. But this position is altogether untenable. For if things that differ agree in some point, there must be some cause for that agreement, since things diverse in nature cannot be united of themselves. Hence, whenever in different things some one thing common to all is found, it must be that these different things receive that one thing from some one cause, as different bodies that are hot receive their heat from fire. But being is found to be common to all things, however otherwise different. There must, therefore, be one principle of being from which all things in whatever way existing have their being, whether they are invisible and spiritual, or visible and corporeal. But the devil is called the god of this world, not as having created it, but because worldlings serve him. Of whom also the Apostle says, speaking in the same sense, quote, Whose God is their belly. End quote. Philemon 3.19 Reply Objection 1 All the creatures of God in some respects continue forever, at least as to matter, since what is created will never be annihilated, even though it be corruptible. And the nearer a creature approaches God, who is immovable, the more it also is immovable. For corruptible creatures endure forever as regards their matter, though they change as regards their substantial form. But incorruptible creatures endure with respect to their substance, though they are mutable in other respects, such as place, for instance, the heavenly bodies, or the affections as spiritual creatures. But the Apostle's words, quote, the things which are seen are temporal, end quote. Though true even as regards such things considered in themselves, insofar as every visible creature is subject to time, either as to being or as to movement, are intended to apply to visible things insofar as they are offered to man as rewards. For such rewards as consist in these visible things are temporal while those that are invisible endure forever. Hence, he said before, 2 Corinthians 4.17, It worketh for us an eternal weight of glory. End quote. Reply Objection 2. Corporeal creatures according to their nature are good, though this good is not universal, but partial and limited, the consequence of which is a certain opposition of contrary qualities, though each quality is good in itself. To those, however, who estimate things, not by the nature thereof, but by the good they themselves can derive therefrom, everything which is harmful to themselves seems simply evil. For they do not reflect that what is in some way injurious to one person, to another is beneficial. 
and that even to themselves the same thing may be evil in some respects, but good in others. And this could not be if bodies were essentially evil and harmful. Reply Objection 3. Creatures of themselves do not withdraw us from God, but lead us to Him. For, quote, the invisible things of God are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. End quote. Romans 1, 20. If, then, they withdraw men from God, it is the fault of those who use them foolishly. Thus it is said, Wisdom 14, 11, quote, Creatures are turned into a snare to the feet of the unwise. End quote. And the very fact that they can thus withdraw us from God proves that they came from Him, for they cannot lead the foolish away from God except by the allurements of some good that they have from Him. Second Article 1, Question 65, Article 2 Whether corporeal things were made on account of God's goodness? Objection 1. It would seem that corporeal creatures were not made on account of God's goodness, for it is said, Wisdom 1.14, that God, quote, created all things that they might be, end quote. Therefore all things were created for their own being's sake and not on account of God's goodness. Objection 2. Further, good has the nature of an end. Therefore, the greater good in things is the end of the lesser good. But spiritual creatures are related to corporeal creatures, as the greater good to the lesser. Corporeal creatures, therefore, are created for the sake of spiritual creatures, and not on account of God's goodness. Objection 3. Further, justice does not give unequal things except to the unequal. Now God is just. Therefore, inequality not created by God must precede all inequality created by Him. But an inequality not created by God can only arise from free will, and consequently all inequality results from the different movements of free will. Now, corporeal creatures are unequal to spiritual creatures. Therefore, the former were made on account of movements of free will and not on account of God's goodness. On the contrary, it is said, Proverbs 16, 4, quote, The Lord hath made all things for himself, end quote. I answer that. Origen laid down, on first principles, too, that corporeal creatures were not made according to God's original purpose, but in punishment of the sin of spiritual creatures. For he maintained that God in the beginning made spiritual creatures only, and all of equal nature, but that of these, by the use of free will, some turned to God, and according to the measure of their conversion, were given a higher or a lower rank, retaining their simplicity, while others turned from God, and became bound to different kinds of bodies according to the degree of their turning away. But this position is erroneous. In the first place, because it is contrary to Scripture, which, after narrating the production of each kind of corporeal creatures, subjoins, quote, God saw that it was good, end quote, Genesis 1. As if to say that everything was brought into being for the reason that it was good for it to be. 
But according to Origen's opinion, the corporeal creature was made not because it was good that it should be, but that the evil in another might be punished. Secondly, because it would follow that the arrangement which now exists of the corporeal world would arise from mere chance. For if the sun's body was made what it is, that it might serve for a punishment suitable to some sin of a spiritual creature, it would follow, if other spiritual creatures had sinned in the same way as the one to punish whom the sun had been created, that many suns would exist in the world, and so of other things. But such a consequence is altogether inadmissible. Hence we must set aside this theory as false, and consider that the entire universe is constituted by all creatures as a whole consists of its parts. Now if we wish to assign an end to any whole, and to the parts of that whole, we shall find first that each and every part exists for the sake of its proper act, as the eye for the act of seeing. Secondly, that less honorable parts exist for the more honorable, as the senses for the intellect, the lungs for the heart. And thirdly, that all parts are for the perfection of the whole, as the matter for the form, since the parts are, as it were, the matter of the whole. Furthermore, the whole man is on account of an extrinsic end, that end being the fruition of God. So, therefore, in the parts of the universe, also every creature exists for its own proper act in perfection, and the less noble for the nobler, as those creatures that are less noble than man exist for the sake of man, whilst each and every creature exists for the perfection of the entire universe. Furthermore, the entire universe, with all its parts, is ordained towards God as its end, inasmuch as it imitates, as it were, and shows forth the divine goodness to the glory of God. Reasonable creatures, however, have in some special and higher manner God as their end, since they can attain to Him by their own operations, by knowing and loving Him. Thus it is plain that the divine goodness is the end of all corporeal things. Reply Objection 1. In the very fact of any creature possessing being, it represents the divine being and its goodness, and therefore that God created all things that they might have being does not exclude that he created them for his own goodness. Reply Objection 2. The proximate end does not exclude the ultimate end. Therefore, that corporal creatures were, in a manner, made for the sake of the spiritual, does not prevent their being made on account of God's goodness. Reply Objection 3. Equality of justice has its place in retribution, since equal rewards or punishments are due to equal merit or demerit. But this does not apply to things as at first instituted. For just as an architect, without injustice, places stones of the same kind in different parts of a building, not on account of any antecedent difference in the stones, but with a view to securing that perfection of the entire building, which could not be obtained except by the different positions of the stones, even so, God from the beginning, to secure perfection in the universe, has set therein creatures of various and unequal natures, 
according to his wisdom, and without injustice, since no diversity of merit is presupposed. Third Article, 1, Question 65, Article 3. Whether corporeal creatures were produced by God through the medium of the angels? Objection 1. It would seem that corporeal creatures were produced by God through the medium of the angels. For as all things are governed by the divine wisdom, so by it were all things made, according to Psalms 103, 24. Quote, Thou hast made all things in wisdom, end quote. But, quote, it belongs to wisdom to ordain, end quote, as stated in the beginning of the metaphysics, 1, 2. Hence, in the government of things, the lower is ruled by the higher in a certain fitting order, as Augustine says, on the Trinity, 3, 4. Therefore, in the production of things, it was ordained that the corporeal should be produced by the spiritual, as the lower by the higher. Objection 2. Further, diversity of effects shows diversity of causes, since like always produces like. If then all creatures, both spiritual and corporeal, were produced immediately by God, there would be no diversity in creatures, for one would not be further removed from God than another. But this is clearly false, for the philosopher says that some things are corruptible because they are far removed from God. On Generation and Corruption 2, text 59. Objection 3. Further, infinite power is not required to produce a finite effect. But every corporal thing is finite. Therefore it could be, and was, produced by the finite power of spiritual creatures. For in such like beings there is no distinction between what is and what is possible, especially as no dignity befitting a nature is denied to that nature, unless it be in punishment of a fault. On the contrary, it is said, Genesis 1.1, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote, by which are understood corporeal creatures. These, therefore, were produced immediately by God. I answer that, some have maintained that creatures proceeded from God by degrees, in such a way that the first creature proceeded from him immediately, and in its turn produced another, and so on, until the production of corporeal creatures. But this position is untenable, since the first production of corporeal creatures is by creation, by which matter itself is produced. For in the act of coming into being, the imperfect must be made before the perfect, and it is impossible that anything should be created save by God alone. In proof whereof it must be borne in mind that the higher the cause, the more numerous the objects to which its causation extends. Now the underlying principle in things is always more universal than that which informs and restricts it. Thus being is more universal than living, living than understanding, matter than form. The more widely, then, one thing underlies others, the more directly does that thing proceed from a higher cause. Thus the thing that underlies primarily all things belongs properly to the causality of the supreme cause. Therefore no secondary cause 
can produce anything, unless there is presupposed in the thing produced something that is caused by a higher cause. But creation is the production of a thing in its entire substance, nothing being presupposed either uncreated or created. Hence it remains that nothing can create except God alone, who is the first cause. Therefore, in order to show that all bodies were created immediately by God, Moses said, quote, In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. End quote. Reply Objection 1. In the production of things, an order exists, but not such that one creature is created by another, for that is impossible, but rather such that by the divine wisdom diverse grades are constituted in creatures. Reply Objection 2. God himself, though one, has knowledge of many and different things without detriment to the simplicity of his nature, as has been shown above. Question 15, Article 2. So that by his wisdom he is the cause of diverse things as known by him, even as an artificer, by apprehending diverse forms, produces diverse works of art. Reply Objection 3. The amount of the power of an agent is measured not only by the thing made, but also by the manner of making it. For one and the same thing is made in one way by a higher power, in another by a lower. But the production of finite things, where nothing is presupposed as existing, is the work of infinite power, and as such can belong to no creature. Fourth Article 1 Question 65, Article 4. Whether the forms of bodies are from the angels? Objection 1. It would seem that the forms of bodies come from the angels. For Boethius says, on the Trinity, 1, quote, From forms that are without matter come the forms that are in matter. End quote. But forms that are without matter are spiritual substances, and forms that are in matter are the forms of bodies. Therefore, the forms of bodies are from spiritual substances. Objection 2. Further, all that is such by participation is reduced to that which is such by its essence. But spiritual substances are forms, essentially, whereas corporeal creatures have forms by participation. Therefore, the forms of corporeal things are derived from spiritual substances. Objection 3. Further, spiritual substances have more power of causation than the heavenly bodies, but the heavenly bodies give form to things here below, for which reason they are said to cause generation and corruption. Much more, therefore, are material forms derived from spiritual substances. On the contrary, Augustine says, on the Trinity 3, 8, Quote, we must not suppose that this corporeal matter serves the angels at their nod, but rather that it obeys God thus. End quote. But corporeal matter may be said thus to serve that from which it receives its form. Corporeal forms, then, are not from the angels, but from God. I answer that 
It was the opinion of some that all corporeal forms are derived from spiritual substances, which we call the angels. And there are two ways in which this has been stated. For Plato held that the forms of corporeal matter are derived from and formed by forms immaterially subsisting by a kind of participation. Thus he held that there exists an immaterial man and an immaterial horse and so forth, and that from such the individual sensible things that we see are constituted insofar as in corporeal matter there abides the impression received from these separate forms by a kind of assimilation, or, as he calls it, participation. Phaedo 49. And, according to the Platonists, the order of forms corresponds to the order of those separate substances. For example, that there is a single separate substance, which is horse, and the cause of all horses, whilst above this is separate life, or per se life, as they term it, which is the cause of all life, and that above this again is that which they call being itself, which is the cause of all being. Avicenna, however, and certain others have maintained that the forms of corporeal things do not subsist per se in matter, but in the intellect only. Thus they say that from forms existing in the intellect of spiritual creatures, called intelligences by them, but angels by us, proceed all the forms of corporeal matter, as the form of his handiwork proceeds from the forms in the mind of the craftsman. This theory seems to be the same as that of certain heretics of modern times, who say that God indeed created all things, but that the devil formed corporeal matter, and differentiated it into species. But all these opinions seem to have a common origin. They all, in fact, sought for a cause of forms as though the form were of itself brought into being. Whereas, as Aristotle, Metaphysics 7, text 26, 27, 28, proves, what is, properly speaking, made is the composite now such are the forms of corruptible things that at one time they exist and at another exist not, without being themselves generated or corrupted, but by reason of the generation or corruption of the composite, since even forms have not been, but composites have been through forms. For according to a thing's mode of being is the mode in which it is brought into being, since then like is produced from like, we must not look for the cause of corporeal forms in any immaterial form, but in something that is composite, as this fire is generated by that fire. Corporeal forms, therefore, are caused, not as emanations from some immaterial form, but by matter being brought from potentiality into act by some composite agent. But since the composite agent, which is a body, is moved by a created spiritual substance, as Augustine says, on the Trinity 3, 4, 5. It follows further that even corporeal forms are derived from spiritual substances, not emanating from them, but as the term of their movement. And further still, the species of the angelic intellect, which are, as it were, the seminal types of corporeal forms, 
must be referred to God as the first cause. But in the first production of corporeal creatures, no transmutation from potentiality to act can have taken place. And accordingly, the corporeal forms that bodies had when first produced came immediately from God, whose bidding alone matter obeys as its own proper cause. To signify this, Moses prefaces each work with the words, quote, God said, let this thing be, end quote, or, quote, that, end quote, to denote the formation of all things by the word of God, from whom, according to Augustine, first tractate on the Gospel of John, and the literal meaning of Genesis 1, 4, is, quote, all form and fitness and concord of parts, end quote. Reply Objection 1. By immaterial forms, Boethius understands the types of things in the mind of God. Thus the Apostle says, Hebrews 11.3, By faith we understand that the world was framed by the word of God, that from invisible things, visible things might be made. But if by immaterial forms he understands the angels, we say that from them come material forms, not by emanation, but by motion. Reply Objection 2. Forms received into matter are to be referred, not to self-subsisting forms of the same type, as the Platonists held, but either to intelligible forms of the angelic intellect from which they proceed by movement, or still higher, to the types in the divine intellect, by which the seeds of forms are implanted in created things, that they may be able to be brought by movement into act. Reply Objection 3. The heavenly bodies inform earthly ones by movement, not by emanation. End of Question 65. Recording by Tony Russell. Question 66 of Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tony Russell. Summa Theologica Pars Prima on the Angels and on the Six Days by St. Thomas Aquinas. Translated by the Fathers of the English Dominican Province. Question 66. On the order of creation towards distinction in four articles. We must next consider the work of distinction. First, the ordering of creation towards distinction. Secondly, the distinction itself. Under the first head, there are four points of inquiry. 1. Whether formlessness of created matter preceded in time its formation. 2. Whether the matter of all corporal things is the same. 3. Whether the Empyrean heaven was created contemporaneously with formless matter. 4. Whether time was created simultaneously with it. First Article 1. Question 66. Article 1. Objection 1. It would seem that formlessness of matter preceded in time its formation. For it is said, Genesis 1, 2, quote, The earth was void and empty, 
end quote, or, quote, invisible and shapeless, end quote, according to another version, Septuagint, by which is understood the formlessness of matter, as Augustine says, Confessions 12, 12. Therefore matter was formless until it received its form. Objection 2. Further, nature in its working imitates the working of God, as a secondary cause imitates a first cause. But in the working of nature, formlessness precedes form and time. It does so, therefore, in the divine working. Objection 3. Further, matter is higher than accident, for matter is part of substance. But God can effect that accident exist without substance, as in the sacrament of the altar. He could, therefore, cause matter to exist without form. On the contrary, an imperfect effect proves imperfection in the agent. But God is an agent absolutely perfect, wherefore it is said of him, Deuteronomy 32, 4, quote, the works of God are perfect, end quote. Therefore, the work of his creation was at no time formless. Further, the formation of corporeal creatures was effected by the work of distinction. But confusion is opposed to distinction, as formlessness to form. If, therefore, formlessness preceded in time the formation of matter, it follows that at the beginning confusion called by the ancients chaos, existed in the corporeal creation. I answer that, on this point holy men differ in opinion. Augustine, for instance, the literal meaning of Genesis 1, 15, believes that the formlessness of matter was not prior in time to its formation, but only in origin or the order of nature, whereas others, as Basil, second homily on the Hexameron, Ambrose, on the Hexameron 1, and Chrysostom, second homily on Genesis, hold that formlessness of matter preceded in time its formation. And although these opinions seem mutually contradictory, in reality they differ but little. For Augustine takes the formlessness of matter in a different sense from the others. In his sense it means the absence of all form, and if we thus understand it, we cannot say that the formlessness of matter was prior in time either to its formation or to its distinction. As to formation the argument is clear, for if formless matter preceded in duration, it already existed. For this is implied by duration, since the end of creation is being in act, and act itself is a form. To say then that matter preceded, but without form, is to say that being existed actually, yet without act, which is a contradiction in terms. Nor can it be said that it possessed some common form, on which afterwards supervened the different forms that distinguish it. For this would be to hold the opinion of the ancient natural philosophers, who maintained that primary matter was some corporeal thing in act, as fire, air, water, or some intermediate substance, 
Hence it followed that to be made means merely to be changed. For since that preceding form bestowed actual substantial being, and made some particular thing to be, it would result that the supervening form would not simply make an actual being, but this actual being, which is the proper effect of an accidental form. Thus the consequent forms would be merely accidents, implying not generation, but alteration. Hence, we must assert that primary matter was not created altogether formless, nor under any one common form, but under distinct forms. And so, if the formlessness of matter be taken as referring to the condition of primary matter, which in itself is formless, this formlessness did not precede in time its formation or distinction, but only in origin and nature, as Augustine says. In the same way as potentiality is prior to act, and the part to the whole. But the other holy writers understand by formlessness not the exclusion of all form, but the absence of that beauty and comeliness which are now apparent in the corporeal creation. Accordingly, they say that the formlessness of corporeal matter preceded its form and duration. And so when this is considered, it appears that Augustine agrees with them in some respects, and in others disagrees, as will be shown later, question 69, article 1, and question 74, article 2. As far as may be gathered from the text of Genesis, a threefold beauty was wanting to corporeal creatures, for which reason they are said to be without form. For the beauty of light was wanting to all that transparent body which we call the heavens. Whence it is said that, quote, darkness was upon the face of the deep, end quote. And the earth lacked beauty in two ways. First, that beauty which it acquired when its watery veil was withdrawn. And so we read that the earth was void, or invisible inasmuch as the waters covered and concealed it from view. Secondly, that which it derives from being adorned by herbs and plants, for which reason it is called empty, or according to another reading, septuagint, shapeless, that is, unadorned. Thus, after mention of two created natures, the heaven and the earth, the formlessness of the heaven is indicated by the words, darkness was upon the face of the deep, since the air is included under heaven and the formlessness of the earth by the words, the earth was void and empty. Reply Objection 1. The word earth is taken differently in this passage by Augustine and by other writers. Augustine holds that by the words earth and water in this passage, Primary matter itself is signified on account of its being impossible for Moses to make the idea of such matter intelligible to an ignorant people, except under the similitude of well-known objects. Hence, he uses a variety of figures in speaking of it, calling it not water only, nor earth only, lest they should think it to be, in very truth, water or earth. At the same time, it has so far a likeness to earth, 
in that it is susceptible of form, and to water in its adaptability to a variety of forms. In this respect, then, the earth is said to be void and empty, or invisible and shapeless, that matter is known by means of form. Hence, considered in itself, it is called invisible or void, and its potentiality is completed by form. Thus, Plato says that matter is place. Timaeus, quoted by Aristotle, Physics 4, text 15. But other holy writers understand by earth the element of earth. And we have said, Article 1, how in this sense the earth was, according to them, without form. Reply Objection 2. Nature produces effect in act from being in potentiality, and consequently in the operations of nature potentiality must precede act in time and formlessness precede form. But God produces being in act out of nothing, and can, therefore, produce a perfect thing in an instant, according to the greatness of his power. Reply Objection 3. Accident, inasmuch as it is a form, is a kind of act, whereas matter as such is essentially being in potentiality. Hence it is more repugnant that matter should be an act without form than for accident to be without subject. In reply to the first argument in the contrary sense, we say that if, according to some holy writers, formlessness was prior in time to the informing of matter, this arose not from want of power on God's part, but from his wisdom and from the design of preserving due order in the disposition of creatures by developing perfection from imperfection. In reply to the second argument, we say that certain of the ancient natural philosophers maintained confusion devoid of all distinction, except Anaxagoras, who taught that the intellect alone was distinct and without admixture. But previous to the work of distinction, Holy Scripture enumerates several kinds of differentiation, the first being that of the heaven from the earth, in which even a material distinction is expressed, as will be shown later, Article 3, and Question 68, Article 1. This is signified by the words, quote, In the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote. The second distinction mentioned is that of the elements according to their forms, since both earth and water are named. That air and fire are not mentioned by name is due to the fact that the corporeal nature of these would not be so evident as that of earth and water to the ignorant people to whom Moses spoke. Plato, Timaeus 26, nevertheless understood air to be signified by the words spirit of God, since spirit is another name for air, and considered that by the word heaven is meant fire, for he held heaven to be composed of fire, as Augustine relates. The City of God 8.11 But Rabbi Moses, guide for the perplexed, too, though otherwise agreeing with Plato, says that fire is signified by the word darkness, 
since, said he, fire does not shine in its own sphere. However, it seems more reasonable to hold to what we stated above, because by the words Spirit of God, Scripture usually means the Holy Ghost, who is said to move over the waters, not indeed in bodily shape, but as the craftsman's will may be said to move over the material to which he intends to give a form. The third distinction is that of place, since the earth is said to be under the waters that rendered it invisible, whilst the air, the subject of darkness, is described as being above the waters, in the words, quote, Darkness was upon the face of the deep. End quote. The remaining distinctions will appear from what follows. Question 71. Second article, 1. Question 66. Article 2. Whether the formless matter of all corporal things is the same? Objection 1. It would seem that the formless matter of all corporal things is the same. For Augustine says, Confessions 12, 12, quote, I find two things thou hast made, one formed, the other formless, end quote. And he says that the latter was the earth invisible and shapeless, whereby he says, the matter of all corporal things is designated. Therefore, the matter of all corporal things is the same. Objection 2. Further, the philosopher says, Metaphysics 5, text 10, quote, Things that are one in genus are one in matter, end quote. But all corporal things are in the same genus of body. Therefore, the matter of all bodies is the same. Objection 3. Further, different acts befit different potentialities, and the same act befits the same potentiality. But all bodies have the same form, corporeity. Therefore, all bodies have the same matter. Objection 4. Further, matter, considered in itself, is only in potentiality. But distinction is due to form. Therefore, matter considered in itself is the same in all corporeal things. On the contrary, things of which the matter is the same are mutually interchangeable and mutually active or passive, as is said, generation of animals, 1, text 50. But heavenly and earthly bodies do not act upon each other mutually. Therefore, their matter is not the same. I answer that. On this question, the opinions of philosophers have differed. Plato and all who preceded Aristotle held that all bodies are of the nature of the four elements. Hence, because the four elements have one common matter, as their mutual generation and corruption prove, it followed that the matter of all bodies is the same. But the fact of the incorruptibility of some bodies was ascribed by Plato, not to the condition of matter, but to the will of the artificer, God, whom he represents as saying to the heavenly bodies, quote, By your own nature you are subject to dissolution, but by my will you are indissoluble. For my will is more powerful than the link that binds you together, end quote. 
But this theory Aristotle, on the heavens, 1, text 5, disproves by the natural movements of bodies. For since, he says, the heavenly bodies have a natural movement different from that of the elements, it follows that they have a different nature from them. For movement in a circle, which is proper to the heavenly bodies, is not by contraries, whereas the movements of the elements are mutually opposite, one tending upwards, another downwards. So, therefore, the heavenly body is without contrariety, whereas the elemental bodies have contrariety in their nature. And as generation and corruption are from contraries, it follows that whereas the elements are corruptible, the heavenly bodies are incorruptible. But in spite of this difference of natural corruption and incorruption, Avisbron taught unity of matter in all bodies, arguing from their unity of form, and indeed if corporeity were one form in itself, on which the other forms that distinguish bodies from each other supervene, this argument would necessarily be true. For this form of corporeity would inhere in matter immutably, and so far all bodies would be incorruptible. But corruption would then be merely accidental through the disappearance of successive forms. That is to say, it would be corruption, not pure and simple, but partial, since a being in act would subsist under the transient form. Thus, the ancient natural philosophers taught that the substratum of bodies was some actual being, such as air or fire. But supposing that no form exists in corruptible bodies which remains subsisting beneath generation and corruption, it follows necessarily that the matter of corruptible and incorruptible bodies is not the same. For matter, as it is in itself, is in potentiality to form. Considered in itself, then, it is in potentiality in respect to all those forms to which it is common. And in receiving any one form, it is in act only as regards that form. Hence it remains in potentiality to all other forms. And this is the case even where some forms are more perfect than others and contain these others virtually in themselves. For potentiality in itself is indifferent with respect to perfection and imperfection, so that under an imperfect form it is in potentiality to a perfect form, and vice versa. Matter, therefore, whilst existing under the form of an incorruptible body, would be in potentiality to the form of a corruptible body. And as it does not actually possess the latter, it has both form and the privation of form. For want of a form in that which is in potentiality, thereto is privation. But this condition implies corruptibility. It is therefore impossible that bodies by nature corruptible and those by nature incorruptible should possess the same matter. Neither can we say, as Averroes, on the substance of the heavens, too, imagines, that a heavenly body itself is the matter of the heaven, 
being in potentiality with regard to place, though not to being, and that its form is a separate substance united to it as its motive force. For it is impossible to suppose any being in act unless in its totality it be act and form, or be something which has act or form. Setting aside then in thought the separate substance stated to be endowed with motive power, if the heavenly body is not something having form, that is, something composed of a form and the subject of that form, it follows that in its totality it is form and act. But every such thing is something actually understood, which the heavenly bodies are not, being sensible. It follows, then, that the matter of the heavenly bodies, considered in itself, is in potentiality to that form alone which it actually possesses. Nor does it concern the point at issue to inquire whether this is a soul or any other being. Hence, this form perfects this matter in such a way that there remains in it no potentiality with respect to being, but only to place, as Aristotle, on the heavens, 1, text 20, says. So then, the manner of the heavenly bodies and of the elements is not the same, except by analogy, in so far as they agree in the character of potentiality. Reply Objection 1 Augustine follows in this the opinion of Plato, who does not admit a fifth essence, or we may say that formless matter is one with the unity of order, as all bodies are one in the order of corporeal creatures. Reply Objection 2. If genus is taken in a physical sense, corruptible and incorruptible things are not in the same genus, on account of their different modes of potentiality, as is said in Metaphysics 10, text 26. Logically considered, however, there is but one genus of all bodies, since they are all included in the one notion of corporeity. Reply Objection 3. The form of corporeity is not one and the same in all bodies, being no other than the various forms by which bodies are distinguished, as stated above. Reply Objection 4. As potentiality is directed towards act, Potential beings are differentiated by their different acts, as sight is by color, hearing by sound. Therefore, for this reason, the matter of the celestial bodies is different from that of the elemental, because the matter of the celestial is not in potentiality to an elemental form. Third Article 1. Question 66. Article 3 whether the Empyrean heaven was created at the same time as formless matter. Objection 1. It would seem that the Empyrean heaven was not created at the same time as formless matter, for the Empyrean, if it is anything at all, must be a sensible body. But all sensible bodies are movable, and the Empyrean heaven is not movable. For if it were so, its movement would be ascertained by the movement of some visible body, which is not the case. The Empyrean heaven, then, was not created contemporaneously with formless matter. Objection 2. Further, 
Augustine says, on the Trinity, 3, 4, that, quote, the lower bodies are governed by the higher in a certain order, end quote. If, therefore, the Empyrean heaven is the highest of bodies, it must necessarily exercise some influence on bodies below it. But this does not seem to be the case, especially as it is presumed to be without movement, for one body cannot move another unless itself also be moved. Therefore, the Empyrean heaven was not created together with formless matter. Objection 3. Further, if it is held that the Empyrean heaven is the place of contemplation, and not ordained to natural effects, on the contrary, Augustine says on the Trinity 4.20, In so far as we mentally apprehend eternal things, so far are we not of this world, end quote. from which it is clear that contemplation lifts the mind above the things of this world. Corporeal place, therefore, cannot be the seat of contemplation. Objection 4. Further, among the heavenly bodies exists a body, partly transparent and partly luminous, which we call the sidereal heaven. There exists also a heaven wholly transparent, called by some the aqueous or crystalline heaven. If then there exists a still higher heaven, it must be wholly luminous. But this cannot be, for then the air would be constantly illuminated, and there would be no night. Therefore the Empyrean heaven was not created together with formless matter. On the contrary, Strabus says that in the passage, quote, in the beginning God created heaven and earth, end quote, heaven denotes not the visible firmament, but the Empyrean or fiery heaven. I answer that. The Empyrean heaven rests only on the authority of Strabus and Bede, and also of Basil all of whom agree in one respect, namely, in holding it to be the place of the blessed. Strabus and Bede say that as soon as created it was filled with angels, and Basil, second homily on the Hexameron, says, quote, Just as the lost are driven into the lowest darkness, so the reward for worthy deeds is laid up in the light beyond this world, where the just shall obtain the abode of rest, end quote. But they differ in the reasons on which they base their statement. Strabus and Bede teach that there is an Empyrean heaven because the firmament, which they take to mean the sidereal heaven, is said to have been made not in the beginning, but on the second day, whereas the reason given by Basil is that otherwise God would seem to have made darkness his first work, as the Manichaeans falsely assert, when they call the God of the Old Testament the God of darkness. These reasons, however, are not very cogent. For the question of the firmament, said to have been made on the second day, is solved in one way by Augustine, and in another by other holy writers. But the question of the darkness is explained according to Augustine, the literal meaning of Genesis 1 and 7, by supposing that formlessness, signified by darkness, preceded form not by duration, but by origin. 
According to others, however, since darkness is no creature but a privation of light, it is a proof of divine wisdom that the things it created from nothing it produced first of all in an imperfect state and afterwards brought them to perfection. But a better reason can be drawn from the state of glory itself, for in the reward to come a twofold glory is looked for, spiritual and corporeal, not only in the human body to be glorified, but in the whole world which is to be made new. Now the spiritual glory began with the beginning of the world, in the blessedness of the angels, equality with whom is promised to the saints. It is fitting, then, that even from the beginning there should be made some beginning of bodily glory in something corporeal, free at the very outset from the servitude of corruption and change, and wholly luminous, even as the whole bodily creation after the resurrection is expected to be. So then, that heaven is called the Empyrean, i.e. fiery, not from its heat, but from its brightness. It is to be noticed, however, that Augustine, the city of God, 10, 9, and 27, says that Porphyry sets the demons apart from the angels by supposing that the former inhabit the air, the latter the ether, or Empyrean. But Porphyry, as a Platonist, held the heaven, known as Sidereal, to be fiery, and therefore called it Empyrean or Ethereal, taking Ethereal to denote the burning of flame, and not as Aristotle understands it, swiftness of movement, on the heavens 1, text 22. This much has been said to prevent anyone from supposing that Augustine maintained an Empyrean heaven in the sense understood by modern writers. Reply Objection 1. Sensible, corporeal things are movable in the present state of the world, for by the movement of corporeal creatures is secured by the multiplication of the elements. But when glory is finally consummated, the movement of bodies will cease, and such must have been from the beginning the condition of the Empyrean. Reply Objection 2. It is sufficiently probable, as some assert, that the Empyrean heaven, having the state of glory for its ordained end, does not influence inferior bodies of another order, those namely that are directed only to natural ends. Yet it seems still more probable that it does influence bodies that are moved, though itself motionless, just as angels of the highest rank who assist, infra question 112 article 3 influence those of lower degree who act as messengers though they themselves are not sent as dionysius teaches on the heavenly hierarchy 12 for this reason it may be said that the influence of the empyrean upon that which is called the first heaven and is moved produces therein not something that comes and goes as a result of movement, but something of a fixed and stable nature, as the power of conservation or causation, or something of the kind pertaining to dignity. 
Reply Objection 3. Corporeal place is assigned to contemplation, not as necessary, but as congruous, that the splendor without may correspond to that which is within. Hence Basil, second homily on the hexameron, says, quote, The ministering spirit could not live in darkness, but made his habitual dwelling in light and joy. End quote. Reply Objection 4. As Basil says, second homily on the hexameron, quote, It is certain that the heaven was created spherical in shape, of dense body, and sufficiently strong to separate what is outside it from what it encloses. On this account it darkens the region external to it, the light by which itself is lit up being shut out from that region. End quote. But since the body of the firmament, though solid, is transparent, for that it does not exclude light, as is clear from the fact that we can see the stars through the intervening heavens, we may also say that the Empyrean has light not condensed so as to emit rays, as the sun does, but of a more subtle nature. Or it may have the brightness of glory which differs from mere natural brightness. Fourth article, 1, question 66, article 4. Whether time was created simultaneously with formless matter. Objection 1. It would seem that time was not created simultaneously with formless matter. For Augustine says, Confessions 12.12, Quote, I find two things that thou didst create before time was, the primary corporeal matter and the angelic nature. End quote. Therefore time was not created with formless matter. Objection 2. Further, time is divided by day and night, but in the beginning there was neither day nor night, for these began when God divided the light from the darkness. Therefore, in the beginning, time was not. Objection 3. Further, time is the measure of the firmament's movement, and the firmament is said to have been made on the second day. Therefore, in the beginning, time was not. Objection 4. Further, movement precedes time, and therefore should be reckoned among the first things created, rather than time. Objection 5. Further, as time is the extrinsic measure of created things, so is place. Place, then, as truly as time, must be reckoned among the things first created. On the contrary, Augustine says, the literal meaning of Genesis 1, 3, quote, Both spiritual and corporeal creatures were created at the beginning of time. End quote. I answer that. It is commonly said that the first things created were these four, the angelic nature, the Empyrean heaven, formless corporeal matter, and time. It must be observed, however, that this is not the opinion of Augustine, for he, Confessions 12, 12, specifies only two things as first created, the angelic nature and corporeal matter making no mention of the Empyrean heaven. But these two, 
namely the angelic nature and formless matter, precede the formation by nature only and not by duration. And therefore, as they precede formation, so do they precede movement and time. Time, therefore, cannot be included among them. But the enumeration above given is that of other holy writers who hold that the formlessness of matter preceded by duration its form. And this view postulates the existence of time as the measure of duration, for otherwise there would be no such measure. Reply Objection 1. The teaching of Augustine rests on the opinion that the angelic nature and formless matter precede time by origin or nature. Reply Objection 2. As in the opinion of some holy writers, matter was in some measure formless before it received its full form, so time was in a manner formless before it was fully formed and distinguished into day and night. Reply Objection 3. If the movement of the firmament did not begin immediately from the beginning, then the time that preceded was the measure not of the firmament's movement, but of the first movement of whatsoever kind. For it is accidental to time to be the measure of the firmament's movement, in so far as this is the first movement. But if the first movement was another than this, time would have been its measure. For everything is measured by the first of its kind. And it must be granted that forthwith from the beginning there was movement of some kind, at least in the succession of concepts and affections in the angelic mind, while movement without time cannot be conceived, since time is nothing else than the measure of priority and succession in movement. Reply Objection 4. Among the first created things are to be reckoned those which have a general relationship to things, and therefore among these time must be included as having the nature of a common measure, but not movement, which is related only to the movable subject. Reply Objection 5. Place is implied as existing in the Empyrean heaven, this being the boundary of the universe. And since place has reference to things permanent, it was created at once in its totality. But time, as not being permanent, was created in its beginning, even as actually we cannot lay hold of any part of time save the now. End of question 66. Recording by Tony Russell.